Welcome to the Gregarious Mammal Podcast. We are back with you with another Lynx show. This is Chris. And this is Kate. And yet again, we're experimenting with a little new setup here. Uh, we are sharing a mic again, but we are recording in a slightly deader room. We have a lovely studio at home, but it has these terrible high ceilings that are great to look at, but horrible to record in. So today we are coming to you live from a little fishbowl room at the Factory Berlin. Yeah, and we actually are going to do a, a show, maybe our next show, discussing the co-working scene in Berlin because uh, to date there's over a hundred different co-working spaces here. So it would be really good to discuss, you know, the trends in co-working, why there's so many spaces, you know, what it means for cafes and um, places that usually um, would would be, you know, laptop free in some respects. <laughs> and um, yeah, and what it means about to the future of work. But as we say, and I think I'm now going to officially make this our podcast slogan, that is a whole other story, a whole other conversation. I can't remember what we said last time, we'll have to nail that. <laughs> okay, let's get started. We've had um, quite a few episodes in the feed that were interviews with various people from Pioneers and other places that I've spoken to recently. Today is a Lynx show. So let's get started. Kate, this first one is from you about Petya. Yes, um, I'm sure everyone's been aware of the Petya cyber attacks over the last few days. Um, Look, it's an interesting one in that what you read, um, what your knowledge is varies varies very much on what you read. <laughs> so um, what we do know is that it's um, it's a cyber attack that's originated um, somewhere in Europe. Um, there's some speculation that it is Russia and that the attack is actually a form of cyber terrorism against Ukraine because Ukraine was the first hit and perhaps the biggest hit um, to the extent that um, the safety kind of radiation measures at Chernobyl uh, were no longer functional and they had to use handheld um, monitors for the um the, the radiation levels, which is a little bit scary when you think about it. Um, but look, this, the, there's a couple of issues I wanted to pull out of this that maybe people haven't really thought about or, you know, to give it a fresh slant because, you know, we can all read about the attack in The Guardian or Wired or something like that and get plenty of information. But what I'm seeing in, in this, and it's just a hint of this, is this growing trend over the last few years of ransomware and ransomware as a service. So what this actually means, and people wow. may not be aware of this, but you may be, <laughs> is that you can actually buy ransomware on the dark net. So you can go in there and for as little as 100 euros or $100, um, buy something that could infect many, many computers. And there's a couple of ways this is done. One is that you buy it outright. The other one is you um, you almost hire it. And what it means is that the person that you gave it to when you get your ransomware back gets a cut. And I think the biggest thing that's come out of this that I've seen talking to people is and reading about it is that what's changed in this is the notion of cyber hacking has been very much about people who were very um, technically minded. So, you know, your idea of the little loner in the hoodie um, hacking away in his, all his like, room. Well, no, they're actually organised oh, okay. criminal gangs these days. Well, you, you mean the internet has been lying to me? Well, it's funny because, as, as people know, you know, when you do uh, media, online media, you have to have images. And when you Google things like um, cyber hacking or cyber criminals in the, um, the free open source um, imagery, you invariably find those images of the, the hooded man 
tapping away at his laptop in the dark, always in the dark. But the reality is these are organised criminal gangs. There is a lot of money behind this. And whilst this attack and the most the other recent one, WannaCry, were both examples where the money that was come out was not, not great. You know, it was $300 increments. Um, you had a relatively small number of people pay that were aware of, I hasten to add. In, in all honesty, I sort of... I don't know, I don't know if it just because it wasn't so um, prevalent as WannaCry. Uh, I sort of missed Petty a little bit. I, uh, I didn't hear so much about it. It, it was. And in I don't some know was, that much about it I think it, it was, but it was in different, disparate ways. Like a lot of it's, a lot of the media's been focused on, on the Ukraine element. Mm. And, you know, is there a political element here? But it even hit the Cadbury Chocolate Factory in, in Australia. <laughs> so it's, and you know, a hospital in America got yeah. closed down because they couldn't work, they couldn't get to their pathology lab. Um, there was also a, a shipping company in Denmark, a bunch of other things. Mm. But look, the thing that's obscured here is that, you know, these are small sort of attacks that have, you know, far-reaching elements. But this whole idea of ransomware as a, um, a way of making money is quite big. Like, um, there's been massive increases in the last year, um, last two years actually, of how many people have paid and how much they've paid. And, you know, the advice on to pay or not to pay really differs depending on who you talk to. It's actually, I mean, it's interesting you, you say this. I've been watching um, season three of uh, Silicon Valley, season three of Halt and Catch Fire. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, in that, one of the characters basically he, he uses a virus to convince people that they need virus protection. And there are some famous virus protection companies in mm. Russia, uh, mm. and you can't help but sometimes be a little bit sceptical about this stuff. And one of those companies did get a visit from the FBI a couple of days ago <laughs> here in oh, in um, America, asking what their links were for their security in Russia. So go figure. I think this is an interesting space, and it's only going to get worse. So I guess stay safe, Correct. stay secure, Correct. keep your machines up to date, don't use dumb passwords. If you connect to public Wi-Fi, be even more secure. And if you have an old Windows, make sure it's patched. <laughs> but, you know, I, and, you know, this is... I would like to think anyone listening to this podcast is not using old versions of Windows, but talk to your friends and family who are. And I might add with that, if you're using, maybe this is more to the case, pirated or borrowed versions of um, uh, software, make sure that yeah. they're up to date as well, because you may not have got those updates automatically. All right, the next... Article is uh, from me. I mean, this is a sort of big discussion we've spoken about a little bit before, but this is an article on The Guardian. Um, some of these links are a few weeks old now, but um, are we about to witness the most unequal societies in history? Um, this kind of comes back to, again, these aspects of uh, AI and machine learning and robots and etc., etc., giving some people supposedly so many benefits and others not at all. Um, and, yeah, also the whole story of filling in with this is that we are now kind of starting, the, the, the difference between rich and the poor is accentuating even more. Um, people will say things like, uh, oh, well, you just have to retrain in high-tech jobs. That's not always possible for oh. everybody. So, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting article. Um and I still am very uncertain how I feel about all of this sort of stuff and what what the outcome of increased automation will be, if any. Um, because I've been, I'm a historical optimist that have seen this happen in the past. 
and that jobs usually end up getting created. But I think the issue for me in this case is this uh, rich versus poor. Um, yes, like if we, even if we look at the last the, the global financial crisis in two thousand eight, the um, the fact that new jobs were created, but a lot of them in some countries were worse jobs. They were less paid, they were less secure, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's kind of the actual aspect that worries me more is that will the new jobs be created be as good as the old jobs that got replaced? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, we were at the Chatbot Summit on Monday and um, there was a lot of discussion there about the issue of chatbots replacing some jobs and they were particularly looking at people in in, in businesses, like it might be, a, you know, a, tra- a post office, a train company, something like that, who were using a lot of chatbots um, and therefore it replacing a lot of the functions in, um, in legal and also in um, accounting and finance. And, you know, these are well-paid, well-trained professions. They're not sort of, you know, your person on the factory floor being replaced by a robot. Um, the idea that it's just the rich um, versus poor is a little... A little inaccurate, but I do agree that's where the poor, the poorer people or the people in the blue-collar jobs will be the, the biggest hit um, that we know at the moment anyway. And it, I think the idea that, you know, everyone can be retrained, sure, but you've got to have the access to the education, you've got to have the money for it, or um, the, you know, the time, the resources to be able to put into it. Not everyone has this. Um, and the jobs that you're retraining for have to be there. Yeah, you know, and, that's and a I think question. the other argument is that in certain parts of the world or the country, these jobs to replace their old jobs are not in those places. That's right. Which will mean increased uh, uh, power in terms of where you can move to and things like that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's an interesting issue, and I I find it very hard to know quite what I think about it. I, mm. I think it's. I'm not going to be uh, historically naive enough to say. It's the only time it's ever happened because it's not. This, no. ha- these schisms have happened in the past, but it's always a little different and situations are different. People have the ability to be more mobile than they used to be. Um, and we'll see. Will that be enough? I think we'll see. Uh, yeah, I, I don't really have any answers, but I think it's interesting to read about it and be at least aware slash prepared as much as you can. Um, yeah. Let's uh, let's maybe wrap that one up there because I think it's a, a difficult subject that many people have opinions on but yeah. don't really have any answers. That's true. Okay, let's move on to <laughs> blockchain, cryptocurrency, etc., etc. I think we've also decided that we need to have uh, an episode with interviewing some um, some people working in this space. There's a few people we know here in Berlin, but mm. for now we're just going to talk about two particular aspects. One is um, from me, which uh, this was actually, uh, again, a couple of weeks ago, but um, relating to... So this was specifically related to, to Coinbase, Digital Currency Exchange, had an outage as a trading source. And we have actually seen in the past few weeks that trading of Ethereum and Bitcoin and some other cryptocurrencies uh, has been very, very fluctuous the past mm. uh, couple of months. Like, it went to massive highs had flash lows, went to real solid lows and all over the place. And for there's been um, this trend of companies and startups involved in that space of doing these ICOs, initial coin offerings recently, mm. where it's basically like crowdfunding on the network that they're proposing. 
And of course, the issue with things like that is that if you are basing your revenue on a cryptocurrency and it fluctuates, then suddenly you could have lost several million overnight. Mm. Um, and this is, yeah, I find, I, whilst I am fascinated by uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies, that whole aspect of this instability is some, as I get older, of course, that also puts me off because it's like if someone said, I'll pay you in Bitcoin, you know, in theory, you have absolutely no idea whether you'll have enough money to pay the rent at the end of the month or not, because who knows what it'll be worth. Um, and I find it interesting. I don't know. And just this aspect that an in-currency could be brought down by server overload. Um, I mean, traditional financial markets have computing issues, but you don't necessarily bring down an entire currency because of a server mm. going down. Mm. I don't know. I find it kind of interesting conceptually, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... I think it's, you know, at the moment, moment, it's a bit like the knowledge is in the hands of a, a relatively small number of people. And um, it is, it's such an insecure market to gain entry to that a lot of people are just kind of throwing their hands up. But like you said, the crowd investing is something that I have seen um, people particularly focused on. The idea that, oh, this is an emerging technology that's going to make us money and it's a new economy and therefore we want to be in on that. And whether that's successful or not is another question, of course. Okay, now, interestingly, in this sort of aspect, one of the... I've had many discussions with people where I try to explain uh, cryptocurrency and I'm going to keep that conversation separate from explaining mm, blockchain mm. because they are different. And a lot, of, a lot of the accusations that people come up with saying, oh, well, it's not like real money because A, B, and C, and often I can actually justify that it's exactly like real money for all those reasons. But one of the interesting aspects of um, many cryptocurrencies is this sort of proof of work. Like traditionally, and a lot of people don't realize that it's not been the case for many years in some countries, traditionally, real money was tied to a physical, um, something physical, like gold, or a physical product. Yeah, silver or things like that. Like it had inherent value. It was mm. saying we as a country are keeping X amount of gold in mm. our vaults and we issue paper that says this money is backed by that. And that actually has not been the case for quite a while. But uh, the, the whole point was that there was some physical effort involved to extract the value. And so cryptocurrencies took the same approach with this proof of work from machines. Make, having to crunch very complex calculations. And there's an aspect of this, Kate, that relates to a link that you posted. Yeah, um, this is about the use of energy um, and le specifically electricity in mining Ethereum. <laughs> and um, an article in Futurism has revealed that um, whilst, as we discussed earlier, you know, the prices have gone from at the start of the year, they were $10, now they're over 300 per coin. Um, there's a big surge in ether mining in people's homes where people use graphic, uh, computer graphic cards to pump new units in and secure, you know, what they've got. Um, some analysis is actually looking at the amount of electricity being used, um, and it's actually equivalent to a small country. So, um, according to one one company called Digiconomist, um, all the household computers that are doing the ether minings um, each have about 45 kilowatts of electricity being used just through that actual function and therefore the actual ethereum network could be consuming more than 4.2 terawatt 
hours, which is only a little bit more than the um, energy being used in Cyprus. Huh. Uh, this is something that people overlook. Yeah. It's an expensive... And it's... it's, it's <laughs> I think I find it interesting that futurists would probably be pro-renewable energy and pro-cryptocurrencies, and yet to generate cryptocurrencies, you have to use a lot of electricity. Mm. I guess... Mm. The traditional argument could be that digging gold out the ground was just as energy intensive. But True. as traditional currencies are even doing that. And you know <laughs> what? There's actually, I think it was Motherboard. I'm definitely going to put the link in. There was a really interesting um, little documentary made, I think, uh, looking at um, crypto mining and uh, Bitcoin mining, rather. And they literally um, had these factories in, in China where there were just, you know, floor to ceiling computers all doing data mining and you know a person that would sleep at the factory but also their job was to walk around every hour and check mm. every single computer to make sure there wasn't a wire loose or something had happened so you can imagine the intense cost of doing this kind of work like it's um it's perhaps bigger than maybe than we thought <laughs> Okay, now I cannot find any uh, good segues into these next links because they're completely <laughs> unrelated to each other and what we've just been talking about. Is, I um, know. How about, Kate, you kick off with uh, Topshop? Yeah, this is a bit of a funny one. Um, VR and fashion have always been kind of a proof of concept kind of thing where the idea works. Um, there's been a few examples where, I think it was 2014, maybe 2011, um, Topshop had VR um, goggles. You could sit there in the shop um, and wear them and you could be transported to the live catwalk show in, um, I think it was in London. So as a way to sort of have an experiential um, fashion. And what they've done is a new one where they've actually got a virtual water slide in London at their flagship store. And so what it means is that you know, there's no actual slide that you jump on because that would be too much fun, right? <laughs> but it's actually um, you sit there on a little inflatable at the entrance to the slide and you wear your glasses and you get a thrilling hyper-reality journey through London. Um, and this is it's, – it's a funny one. I mean, the idea that you can sit um, and experience a ride or, a, you know, a physical activity without being there is very interesting. I was interested in this article because last year at Mobile World Congress I – participated in Samsung's store where they had a virtual roller coaster where you had the Oculus Rift goggles, put them on, and you were on a roller coaster. And it's a really strange experience. You have the same sounds that you would get if, um, you know, you're going up the hill, I guess, on a roller coaster, um, little creaking sounds. Um, you would also get... Um, feelings like what they actually did was they made the chairs move so it was kind of 40 so the chairs actually moved up and down and wiggled and shook as though you were you know going up and down and when you would go down the descent it actually was quite a a bit of a rush like you did get that stomach drop that you do get with a roller coaster yeah i mean i've not done a lot of vr stuff because it's not that great with glasses still but well, yeah. I, have, I have witnessed a lot of talks about this how easy it is to actually trick the mind yeah. into things that you always thought were physical. Astonishing. I, mean, I find this interesting, Kate, but the thing that stumps me is I, I, I understand that retail is struggling and retail has to find new ways oh, yeah. of bringing purpose to itself. Well, what's this got to do with fashion? It's like, <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, I think it's just fun. I mean, it's, yeah. and this is, look, this is the problem with VR. I mean, 
And I think in some ways that's why everyone jumped on AR because it seemed a lot more tangible. Well, this is this is AR, really, isn't it? Is it? I think it's more VR. I look at the picture. Oh no, it is. No, you're right. It is VR. Yeah. yeah. And those don't look like real people. Yeah, you're right. It just is fancy. London looks picture. far too clean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, AR. You've got kind of tangible cases where you can use that in repairing your machinery and industrial applications and stuff like that. Whereas VR is still kind of, there's some medical applications where it's being used as distractions to people with severe pain and stuff like that. But there's a lot of people kind of doing it and not a lot of people running with it, you know? How many people do you know who own the, who own the glasses? How many people do you know that um, involve this in their, their gaming at home or wherever else they choose to do it. I don't know. Okay, now switching completely, and I can find no link to this at all. In fact, well, actually, that was a link, the fact we're talking about the missing link. (laughs) And for some reason, the Guardian website doesn't seem to be working right now, so I can't actually really read much from the article as I talk to you about it. So if Guardian is currently undergoing a cyber attack, I'm not sure. (laughs) Um, I just found this interesting. Nothing to do with technology whatsoever. Um, that the oldest Homo sapien bones were ever found and uh, in Morocco, which the reason this is interesting is it shakes the the assumptions we had made so far about the human story because we always thought that humans came out of East Africa 200,000 years ago and these bones in a mine come from 300,000 years ago. Ah. So it's quite fascinating to know that no matter how advanced we get, there's still a lot of things we don't know about ourselves. Um, and, yeah, I can't read really it anymore because I can't get the website to open right now, but have a look at the link. I find this sort of thing fascinating. Whilst we talk about high technology unearthing our past and our human story is also kind of interesting too. So mm, for sure. I'll leave that there. So we have a couple of sort of and finally links to round up within a minute. But uh, before we close off the show, Kate, what have you been up to the past few weeks and what are you up to over the next few weeks? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess conference-wise, um, I had the IoT Expo, which was IoT meets um, blockchain, meets AI, meets... Meets everything, as far as I can everything. Yeah. It was one of those conferences where they sort of had four different areas and squeezed everyone in, and it was a little bit strange because of that. Um, look, it was an interesting conference. I mean, I think the problem when you get those conferences, I think we were all maybe starting to question conferences as a, as a knowledge source. You know, you get a lot of overviews, so... Um, you go to sessions and you get overviews. But look, to be really honest, the biggest surprise I had was discovering that um, people actually pay to speak at conferences. Oh, yeah. I was surprised you were surprised. <laughs> um, I don't know if everyone else, maybe everyone else knew this and I just didn't. Like, I always thought the whole issue was do some people get paid to speak? It depends on the conference. Yeah. I think is a true, true, true. Yeah. But these are, bear in mind, these are conferences when, you know, people pay to attend as well. They're not free conferences. Mm. And the reason I found this out was speaking to a moderator on one of the panels who said to me that she'd got told off because she didn't let the speakers introduce themselves <laughs> because they'd paid for the privilege, um, which is all kind of interesting. And it was a connected car. Surely and, history speaks for themselves. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. It was a funny one. And, yeah, so when you hear sort of things like that, you do get a little bit sceptical about um, Oh, I know. About yeah. conferences. I've been to a few conferences too. Um I can't actually even remember when we last had a link show, but uh, Pioneers, which was really, really good. We both have been to the Chatbots conference. Mm. I went to DevOps Poland, which was a lot bigger than I was expecting. I went to Developer Week in Nuremberg, which is also 
quite good. Wear it Berlin. A wear it in Berlin, yeah. Um, Which is a wearables conference. Yeah. And I think so, I mean, we actually, coming back to that, we both wrote an article on Wear It Berlin on mm. Dzone, where we talked about some of the things we learnt. Anything else you've written about over the past few weeks, Kate? Or shall I jump into what I've done? Um, yeah, one I wrote about for Dzone, it's a bit of fun that people might, may enjoy. Um, I interviewed one of the guys at Red Hat. Um, his name is Matt. Uh, one, one second, Matt I'll Hat. get his name. His name's not Matt, Matt Hat, unfortunately. Hat, right? Matt Hicks, he's yeah. the vice president. I'll, um, I'll give you his title because we, you know people like these things. Vice President of Engineering for Red Hat OpenShift. So it's okay. A, yep, yep, yep. It's a, it's a, I guess, a company of Red Hat, if that makes sense. Yeah, OpenShift is a, is a big product. Yeah. yeah. Probably and one of their bigger products. It, what we, what we spoke about, and you know, as everyone knows, I'm not a programmer, so I always have to find different angles to, to explore these topics. Well, I think you actually find OpenShift is a DevOps tool, so that really oh, shows you go. you're not a programmer. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, well, and just, just in case everyone is any doubt there, I was being a little facetious there. I wasn't insulting Kate, just in case that didn't come across. <laughs> well, yeah, now I'm going to have to ask what DevOps is. <laughs> What do you think it is? What do you think Dev is? Developing. What do you think Ops is? Operations. There you go. <laughs> um, okay, there we go. Basically, getting the code live and keeping it live, pretty much, is a summary. So, is that front end? No, 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 no. Like the infrastructure, right. maintenance of the infrastructure. Okay, right. Um, but anyway, what we actually spoke about was. Um, dramas in open source communities and we know this issue is a big one because yeah, people in certainly and people, red hat and fedora the kind of open source thing they definitely people invest a lot of energy and time into open source um communities and there's all kinds of ethics and um unwritten social rules and etiquette that people hmm. either learn about the hard way or they completely miss and end up offending everyone and i think you've just made the understatement of the decade yeah <laughs> and, and look just just one aside, I um, got invited to attend a Node.js conference um, with the hope that they'd be doing some IoT kind of stuff that I could write about. I think this was a little while ago. Yeah. I think we actually talked about this on a previous episode, so maybe we'll find the link and people can listen to that episode. Um, but yeah, there was a number yeah. of dramas at that conference. Yeah. But anyway, in response, Matt's actually written eight um, unwritten rules to follow. <laughs> and a lot of these are in response to particularly... Um, Companies coming into open source, um, enterprise, I guess, and dumping like a million lines of code mm, and mm. everyone just going, well, what, <laughs> you know, or people having expectations that, yes, um, I'm going to lend you my, effectively, some of my um, intellectual property and my knowledge and my history in my company. Um, and therefore, I'm going to control a little bit about how you can use it and what. And, and is this article on ReadWrite? It's on DZone. On DZone. Excellent. Yeah. Okay. So have a look at that. We'll put the links. Um, in Actually, in a similar vein, I have I spoke to Chip Childers, a very American name there. Chip. <laughs> CTO of Cloud Foundry. Cloud Foundry is uh, actually somewhat similar to OpenShift. So uh, that's on DZone as well. I think it was also in the podcast feed. Um, I also did an article on Screeps, which is a terrible name, but made by Can you by spell this that for me? <laughs> As the guy described it to me, it's creep with an S. It's like, you do understand the meaning of creep. But anyway, uh, <laughs> Scroops, but it's, uh, despite the name, it's actually a really interesting product. It's basically a learn-to-code game where right. you control the little uh, characters and the environment by coding. So you have to code to make anything happen. Mm. It's quite cool, despite the terrible name. Um, 
I also did a roundup of HashiCorp tools, which are also DevOps tools. <laughs> so we've got a bit of a DevOps feature here uh, for CodeShip. I finally, even though I wrote it ages ago, it finally got published, a review of Timing 2, which is a Mac app that it tracks your use of applications. It's great for freelancers because you don't have to keep manually sort of saying, I'm working on this, I'm working on that. You can go back through your history and sort of auto-categorize, well, when I'm working in this application, it was for this client, et cetera, et cetera. And finally, again, in the DevOps space, Kate, we've got a bit of a, maybe we should have uh, thought about this some more. I just wrote an article for a new outlet uh, on OverOps, or the, I think it's the Tapiki or something blog they have, on five methods for monitoring Java applications in Docker, which has already been quite popular. That actually only got published uh, yesterday, and that's already become quite popular. Uh, Conference-wise, I think we're both taking a little bit of a break. Oh, we have... Tech Open Air coming up, which will be quite busy. Yeah. But that's here in Berlin. We're hoping we can do some live podcasts from yeah, Tech Open Air. I think so. Some interviews. So but, on. but then in terms of travelling, our next itineraries are right at the docks in Prague in September. And I am back at the awesome uh, Voxt Belgrade in October sometime. And maybe some others. We might be going to Siberia as well, as strange and as that may sound. Let's not forget um, Web Summit in Portugal. Oh, that's in November. Yeah. 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 Um, so any other articles you would quickly want to put in, Kate? No, I think that's all for today. Okay. Uh, I have one other cheeky plug. Um, talking of podcasts, I was on the versioning podcast, the Site Points podcast, talking about the book I just wrote. Um, and that episode came out a couple of days ago, so go and have a listen to that. And finally, Kate, to wrap up, um, with a sort of comedy article, is this one you want to talk about? Have you read the article? About the uh, the cat, the very uh, no, okay, all right. I think this will be right up your street, Kate. But there's this quite amusing article from Gizmodo mm. about the secret history of the cat who authored a physics paper. Um, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> unsurprisingly, the cat didn't actually write a physics paper, which may disappoint you. But oh. basically, the owner of said cat would always add the cat's name to anything he ever wrote. So the cat has all these credits on physics papers. <laughs> um, speaking of cats, I'll give a plug myself. Um, the well-known Kickstarter project Music for Cats, where <laughs> a, um audiologist, musicologist, whatever the right term is, um, with some smatterings of behavioural science in there, animal behavioural science, uh, made a, a original record that um, you could enjoy with your cat based on music that... Um, their research cat had, power, cat Stevens. <laughs> their research had indicated that cats like to listen to. Um, What's and up, pussy cat? I actually pussy we, in boots. You know what we? Because I, th- I think it's kind of fascinating. I'm running out here. He's <laughs> <laughs> making me laugh. It's a, quite a fascinating topic. So we may even be able to get the guy to have a chat with us. Um, nothing but a hound dog. No, it doesn't work. That's dogs. I don't know about music for dogs. That's just way too confusing. But yeah, he's he's got a second um, album coming out. And um, we may even try and get him on the show for a little bit of an interview because I think it'd be super fun. Okay. Uh, Thanks for listening. Keep an ear open. I will have an interview with the CTO of Hyperledger popping up in the feed soon on the subject of blockchain again. Um, I have been Chris Ward, Christian Chiller, at Chris Chinch on Twitter. And I've been Kate Lawrence, that's Kate with a C, underscore Lawrence with a W on Twitter. Getting you a badge made of that. Yep. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please rate it in iTunes or Pocket Cast, wherever else you listen. 
If you want to find previous episodes, go to gregariousmammal.com slash podcast and maybe buy some merchandise or support us, gregariousmammal.com slash support. I was reminded yet again of the constant appropriateness of one T-shirt we have, which is the answer that every technical person ever gives you. And you can wear it emblazoned across your chest. And that is, it depends.